Hello, and welcome to episode two, Battle of the Ley Lines, the final chronicle. What's a medieval fantasy without a little animal sacrifice and monks being evil? I mean, you know. Just a little message to say, I'm starting casting soon for three special episodes, so if you're interested in voice acting, contact me via my website, the-greenlands.com, or via the socials. Just search up The Greenlands. It'll pop up. If you want to know more about what's going on with this project, sign up for our newsletter on our website, or again, check out my socials. If you like what we're doing here, or you want to scream at us, or give us some money or advice, drop us a rating or a review or a comment. I would really appreciate it. For this episode, I would like to thank the incredible cast, James Hare, David McCran, Helen Verry, Kitty Bennett, Linda Dutton, Sam Perry, and Vicky Holding, and our amazing editor, Ellen Glynn, and our composer, Dennis Moen. And hey, thank you to you too. Inside the refectory at the Shrine of the Bone, it's the evening. The Cenobite, Abba Hagitov is sitting at the head of the table with the abbess and sister Patience, and then sister Mavis and sister Bluster. At the bottom of the table, below the salt, are the poor pilgrims. Everyone is helping themselves and serving themselves from dishes. Oh, we have been doing well this week. There are so many pilgrims coming to worship the bone in this time of plague. So many of my services are being paid for and so many pardonings purchased that I think our little shrine is really doing well in the GMP stakes. The abbess stares bewildered and questioningly at him. Gross monastic product, my dear. He beams around at his poor pilgrim customers who nervously all clutch at their purses. The Cenobite confidingly leans into the abbess. Such a shame that you have nothing to sell while you're here, Mother. Still, what did you find in my library? There is a vast amount of knowledge in there. So many ancient books that I'm afraid to touch them. Oh, yes. They are terribly valuable. Unfortunately, I have been bound never to sell them on. A shame, as the profit would have been considerable. I have discovered something interesting. The necklace that your prioress wore is apparently an ancient relic called a leyline key. Mavis clutches the broken pendant hanging around her neck. Oh no, that's not good. The others stare at her. If it is one of the keys of sorcery, it was broken when my mistress summoned the moor. Keys of sorcery? I am sure I've heard something about that in the ancient texts. Something to do with the monsters the sun locked away in ancient times to keep us human folks safe. Abba strokes his beard. Oh, my dear abbesses, that's a child story from your religion. How could you have possibly forgotten it? The abbess goes slightly pink. Oh, I have a terrible memory. That is why I write things down, even though I shouldn't, I know. Oh, I know that story. I know all the stories. Oh, do tell it, my dear. It would be much nicer if you told it than I. Well, there isn't much to tell. Simply that there was a terrible war going on many eternities ago, caused by some ancient monsters called the Leyline Demons. The war was destroying the world, and the sun and the moon decided to lock these monsters away forever. 
Um, not really, but close, Sister Patience. The ley lines are ancient rivers of power that run across our world. Everything magical gets its energy to exist from these lines. When the gods locked the ley lines away, they did so to weaken all of the battling gods and monsters, so as to stop the war. Yes, my dears, and the believers of the sun and the moon, among others, were tasked with protecting the locks. Uh, or was it the keys? I can't remember. But if the locks are opened, then the ley lines will be unlocked and all sorts of fun will happen. Which is why I am worried about the Prioress's pendant. They fizzle out into silence, each busy with his own thoughts as they eat. Oh dear, it seems this is growing to become a very large thing. Even worse, it isn't helping us with why Patience has acquired magical powers. Patience looks embarrassed. Abba winks at her over his soup and then returns to the abbess. With one so fair as she, I wouldn't be surprised if she was half-elf or someone's important soul come around for another try at life. Hmm. A reincarnation, you think? They all stare at Patience, who tries to shrink and hide behind her food. Could be. It is daytime in the forest. The lightly green-hued monk is sitting upon an old, broken altar, swinging his feet and sardonically grinning. He takes a small bag out of his robe and throws a pinch of blue dust into a circle which he has inscribed in the soil before him. Come on, then. Come on, you big blue. Ha! A mass of blue smoke slowly curls up from inside of the circle and an outline of a face with a huge mouth appears within the smoke. It looks at the unmoved demon monk, breaks off from its impressive howl, and sulkily says, What? I summon thee, and wilt have thee do my bidding by my powers over thee. But I may choose to destroy thee. I am the servant of Zosha. Any assaults thou considerest will be visited a thousandfold upon thee, and for affinity thy maw holds no terror for me. The moor is reflective. Sosra. Thou hearest? Hang on, can we dispense with the formal speech? It makes my jaw hurt. The moor sort of seems to shrug. Okay, okay. So I need some diversions to give me time to find some keys for my master. <laughs> diversions? Yes, random attacks, deaths, diseases. Uh, make them all at first and various, but enough to keep people busy. Where? Here, of course, you blue idiot. The lands of those wretched sisters. Keep that reincarnated priestess away from me. And as a favor to the young man who has suffered greatly from my master's cause, give the local baron a taste of terror. The moor opens its mouth even wider and dissolves. The monk grins. The gardens of the Baron's castle 
it's daytime. Imelda, the dowdy early 40s unemployed dependent old school friend of the Baroness, is walking along next to the Baroness, carrying a large cushion and a big fan, and trying to write on a parchment. The Baroness is waving her arms about and listing guests whom she would like to have at the daughter's wedding. As they slowly traverse the garden gravel walks, with the Baroness holding the lead of Luisa's very small, very ugly little dog. And then, of course, there's the Abbess of the Sanctuary of the Tears. You know, the Sisters in the Middle Sun. And the Prioress of the Moon. Oh, we shall have to sit to them far apart from each other. Oh, but after that whole demon attack thing, what? Oh, I'd quite forgotten. Strike off the Prioress. I forgot she got devoured. Empty your bladder portals. The Baroness stops and looks down at the dog. The dog looks up, stupidly. What about that hack man from the Shrine of, of the... Oh, what was it? Uh, shrine of the Hare? The Baroness shudders. No, not them. Abba at the Shrine of the Bone. Yes, we'll have to invite the Abba, of course. He was present at Burb's naming. Poodles peas on a rose bush. Imelda inspects the list. The Baroness resumes her walk and Imelda catches up. You know, we already have over 200 people coming, Bertie. Do you think we should start on all of the region's clerisy as well? The Baroness stops walking and ponders. I would like dear Mother Euphemia to come. She used to do my teaching when I was young, you know, but I suspect she wouldn't come anyway, especially, uh, as you said, after that demon thing. Poodles, pass a motion. She stops again and looks at the dog, who is starting to look very confused. Well, look, ask the dear old stick anyway. I'll think of the aristocracy and gentry later. Also, we really should stop enjoying ourselves and get on with some work. I said poodles, go pee-pee. The dog stares at her with his huge, sad eyes. Imelda is frantically trying to pack up her pencil and fold up the lists and papers. I must race off and talk to Cook and then find out what Burb has been up to. I haven't seen him since breakfast. Don't forget the seating arrangements. I think Poodles is definitely brain dead. I suppose when he goes, he goes. The Baroness sighs and picks up Poodles and dumps him on the already overburdened Imelda. She floats off and Imelda tries to curtsy. She smiles sicklily while balancing her gear and Poodles. A corridor in the Baron's castle is daytime. Burb is standing, bent over, inspecting the working of a lock of an open door. He has a stick. Quinn comes walking down the corridor. Quinn sees Burb, who hears him at the same time. Burb rapidly resumes an upright position, puts his hands in his pockets, smiles at Quinn, and ambles absently and innocently away, whistling. Quinn furtively watches Burb disappear down the corridor, looks around himself, and then bends and inspects the lock himself. the courtyard of the Baron's castle, and it's daytime. Thirty-two seedy, sullen-looking men are standing in four lines of eight in front of Adamant, who is male-clad with a tabard over. The men all have long staves. Morag stands a little off to one side, looking scary. Right! Well, we do need a little more practice on the hand-to-hand -hand side, but we really need formation practice and response to command work. Why? So that we can repel an enemy if need be, and... What enemy? And because 
The Baron has said that he will have the two worst men dressed in the clothes of women, cutting me ladies' lawns with nail scissors for a fortnight. Ooh, Daddy gonna punish us. Adamant looks at Morag, who rolls his eyes and shrugs. Break time. All right, men. Right turn now. Most of the men turn to the right quite lazily, apart from two who are holding out their hands confusedly and turning to the left. Harold, can you ink right and left later onto Raoul and Godfrey's hands, please? Uh, they can't read, my lord. Mm, then teach them. I can't read, my lord. And rolls his eyes and sighs. Return centre! Now! The men all return to face the front and join the useless two who are still trying to remember their hands. At ease! The men go to various forms of at ease, almost none of them being legitimate military stances. Adamant looks at Morag, who stares dead-eyed at the men. The men then notice Morag. They flinch and suddenly stand up straighter. Dismissed! The men look at Morag and then almost run away. Adamant and Morag start to walk away to the keep, while Adamant removes his chainmail gloves. Hippodrone wine or black beer? Morag is still watching the last of the men leave and glaring at them. Both! The draper's shop in the village. It's daytime. The Baroness and Imelda enter. Imelda puts the baskets on the counter. The sullen draper's wife enters, nods and sniffs at her customers. Good morning, Mistress Walleye. Morning. Who is it, then? It's Baroness. Oh, er. Uh. The Baroness looks irritatedly at Imelda. Have you got any silk taffeta? What? For that do you're having up at Castle? Yes, that do. I heard it were your daughter marrying one of them squires, like. Well, have you got some cut velvet for swagging the tables and pews, then? There's no call for it. It's that lad we burnt and, isn't it? Well, if you could just let me have some damascened cordwain, perhaps I could use that. Used to, but moths had it. My Lottie and the other day were saying as she's so glad her intended is a big lad and able to keep her in comfort like. She said she were glad she weren't stuck with a man with a manky hand. The Baroness puts both her hands on the counter and takes a deep breath. She leans forward. It pains me to tell you this, Mistress Walleye, but you have quite mistaken the matter. Lady Louisa Brethnack is about to marry the Prince of Halstatton and will eventually be the Queen of the Northlands. She turns away and picks up the basket. Don't worry about the fabric, though. I can easily get some from the new draper. The draper's wife looks horrified and suspicious. You what? Oh! <laughs> the Baroness smiles sweetly. Didn't I tell you? My husband has just rented out that little cottage at the top of the street to a young draper who is to stock the latest fabrics down from the King's Court. Such a breath of fresh air. Imelda and the Baroness move towards the door. Good morning, Mistress Walleye. They sail out. The draper's wife stares, mouth opened and aghast. It's night time. There is a full moon shining on the old priory. The demon monk is striding up and down intermittently, looking at the moon and waiting. Suddenly there is a strong gust of wind followed by a chittering sound and then whispers. 
The monk draws anxiously near to the back wall of the building. In the moonlight, the back wall begins to drip black slime, out of which materialises a horrific face. What news could it run? How soon before I am free? One ley line is not enough. I need all of them. I am sorry, Master. I am searching as hard as I can. The keys are well hidden and guarded. I wouldn't have even guessed that the prioress's necklace was one. The face grimaces and hisses at the monk, who cowers a little more. Oh, uh, I have finally found the whereabouts of the other keys, though. Now all I need to do is retrieve them and activate them. The face stares at him blankly. The demon monk stammers and hurries on. It is very old magic, you see, master. The gods didn't exactly leave instructions on how to unlock the ley lines. I hadn't realized. You dumb children, you don't know anything. Blood, blood spilled on the keys will make them corrupt and break them. The face tries to push its way out of the wall a little. The monk falls to his knees in terror. Oh, oh, thank you, master. Thank you. I do not deserve your kindness. The key of iron is in the castle of Brethnak. I have one helping me there. The key of gold. It is in the Grey Dragon's cave. Uh, I need time for this. The face snarls. The monk continues speeding up in his terror. Uh, uh, the spirit key is in the old sanctuary in the elven woods at Shreem. Um, uh, this one is in hand. And the sun key. Oh, uh, yeah. Th that one is difficult because it is an altar. Uh, the entire big stone altar of those accursed sisters. It will need a lot of blood to taint it. And worse of all... They have a reincarnation among them to protect it. Yes. I sensed something familiar wandering around. It seems her new avatar hasn't learned the full extent of her own powers yet. Oh, I hope so, Master. She's powerful enough without them. Excuses! Find the keys, filth, or I will tear you from him. face freezes and slides off the wall into a pile of dust. The demon monk sighs in relief and rubs his face miserably. Then he turns and hurries off into the night. A woodland track in the Baron's domain. It's daytime. An old woman with a bandage over her eyes is standing sideways onto a stream with large stepping stones that cross it. She seems at peace and enjoying her surroundings. The Baroness and Imelda come along the track out of the woods, carrying their visiting baskets. They see the old woman and hurry up to her. Don't worry, mistress. We will help you cross the river. You are so brave travelling alone. Oh, for pity's sake! Oh, I could never travel if blind. A trip over so many things. Oh, well, I hear when you are blind, your other senses become much sharper. Don't they, mistress? Sharper! I'll run you well sharp, you two, in a minute. I just crossed that river. You've put 
me back where I came from. Get off! She shakes herself free from them as they reach the other side of the stream. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't recognise you. You're the seer. Oh, I must ask, is might still right, Mother? You know, your soothsaying from last time. I don't know if I want to talk to you two. You've got my feet wet and my journey. Worse! Imelda sighs, reaches into her sleeve and pulls out some gold coins, which she rubs together. The seer's head snaps to look at the coins. The old woman grabs the coins and bites them. Hmm. All right, then. I've got a bit of time for you. The seer reaches into her sleeves and pulls out a crystal and a wand, among some other magic paraphernalia. She lays these reverently upon the grass. She then takes up and rubs some little sticks together, which then start to burn. The seer then does a shuffling dance, raising her hands with the sticks. The Baroness and Imelda watch, rather impressed. Finally, the old woman is done with her swaying and muttering, but nothing happens. She sighs, reaches into her skirt again and pulls out a small stone bottle. She uncorks it and sets it down. She looks up at the sky. Well... There is a rumble of thunder and flashes of golden light. The clouds turn livid shades of lavender and golden eyes appear in them. Ugh. I got your uskaba, my lady. You always say it's never too early for uskaba. Send it off. The seer pours the brown spirit into a cup and sets fire to it with one of her burning sticks. All right. Huh. It's the same, but with kith and kin instead of might. The rumble repeats, as do the purple clouds. The golden-purple eyes wink and then vanish. The seer looks at the baroness. Well, you heard her. The seer grabs her stuff and hobbles off rapidly into the woods. The baroness looks at him elder. Do you think kith and kin is right? Is right? Well, mine can't right because they're dead mm, mine are always wrong both continue their walk why are seers so cryptic can't they just tell you what's going to happen was that actually Etty? they vanish along the track the gardens in the baron's castle it is daytime the Baroness is walking around her shrubbery while pacing out lengths of path and making frames with her hands and generally envisaging for the wedding. She comes around a bush and finds Uisa and Morag standing kissing. Uisa and Morag spring apart guiltily and the Baroness raises her eyebrows in disapproval at Morag and then at Uisa. Morag has Uisa's lipstick on his face and he is trying to rub it off with his sleeve. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, my lady. You aren't married yet, young man. Go. Away with you. Morag bows and runs away, leaving Uisa giggling. Hmm, <laughs> I see you are mm, in love and uh, ready for marriage. Uisa raises an eyebrow. I would have thought that that is a good thing. I would hate to not be in love before my wedding. Well, yes. Uh, yes, I'm glad that you are both in love with each other, but that stuff is supposed to occur after the wedding. Uisa winks and grins in mock innocence. I mean, I understand you are an adult and ready to marry, but I still see you as my little girl with ribbons in her hair. I worry about... Don't worry, Mama. I am fully prepared for the wedding night. Morag and I have been practising. 
The Baroness gasps in shock and reaches back to lean on the nearest branch. Uisa laughs and scampers <laughs> off. Oh, what's... Oh, Uisa! Love you, Mother! Only joking! The Baroness fans herself with embarrassment. Children nowadays... Adamant's bedroom in the Baron's castle. It is daytime. Adamant is carefully trying to arrange his hair into a quiff while sitting at his dressing table mirror. He has a bowl of cream on the table, which he is using to try and style his hair. Baroness breezes in with some folded fresh shirts and sees him. She watches him arrange and rearrange his quiff. He's so occupied he doesn't even notice her. What are you doing, Adamant? Adamant jumps up in surprise. He knocks his brush off the dressing table. I am doing my hair in a quiff, ma'am. What is a quiff? Whatever for? Um, heroes all have quiffs. It's a necessity. How do you know? She bends down and puts the clothes onto his trunk. Everyone knows. Well, I do... Whatever is that smell? She stands up and sniffs again, sniffing his hair. Don't worry, it's just hog fat, Mother. It's very good for hair growth. Not in your hair. Has Quinn been telling you weird things again? Adamant stands up and stops the quiff arranging. He is trying to be serious and manly. He deflates a bit in front of his mother. No, Mother. I met a salesman. He said it would make me irre... irresist... um... irrespectable. You have to stop falling for sales, shtick, dear. The only reason women would find you irresistible wearing lard would be if they were starving for a ham sandwich. Go on, dear, wash it off. You have lovely hair. She kisses his forehead. Adamant is definitely looking like a little kid now. Yes, Mum. He walks hangdog out of his room, leaving the Baroness shaking her head and folding his clothes. That was episode two of the Battle of the Leylands, The Greeners Presents. I would like to thank the brilliant Ellen Glynn for editing this episode and the talented Dennis Bowen for musicking this episode. You know. If you want to support us, share us with a friend or a victim who you think would like us. If not, I will send the more of terror to eat jello really loudly under your bed at three o'clock in the morning. Anyway, love y'all. Thank you for your support. See y'all next week. Oh yeah, and P.S. By the way, we hit 2K downloads. Thank you.